0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Power 3.0 podcast examining authoritarian resurgence and democratic resilience in an era of globalization. Power 3.0 is brought to you by the International Forum for Democratic Studies, the Ideas Center at the National Endowment for Democracy. I'm your host, Christopher Walker, Vice President for Studies and Analysis at the Endowment, recording from our studio in Washington, D.C.
1: And I'm your co-host, Shanti Kalathal, Senior Director for NEDS International Forum.
0: In a jarringly short period of time, the media landscape has been transformed in ways that have dramatically changed how people understand and interact with the world around them. New social platforms tend to prioritize what is popular over what is important for purposes of civic and public affairs. Social media's corrosive underbelly presents some serious, unanticipated challenges to democratic institutions and discourse. Resurgent authoritarian regimes, meanwhile, are subverting the global information space using both traditional and new forms of media to spread disinformation, reshape narratives, surveil populations, and thwart the open exchange of ideas. In this new environment, audiences no longer receive the same messages or at least know what others are receiving. Instead, digital political messaging campaigns can now target with high precision a specific set of information consumers based on what they already care about. As this trend accelerates in an era of big data and artificial intelligence, soon everyone may be receiving hyper-personalized online messages so that there is no longer common public debate, just a multitude of private ones. Because the messages are so personalized and delivered to unique users, among the harmful byproducts of this trend will be far more difficulty in checking accuracy or authenticity of such information, Given the essential importance of independent, accurate news and information for the health of democracy, the consequences of these dramatic changes are profound.
1: Here to join us for a conversation about the multi-layered set of challenges contributing to disinformation in the global arena, and to help us understand its impact on the future of discourse and debate in the public sphere, we're pleased to welcome to the Power 3.0 podcast Peter Pomerantsev, a senior visiting fellow at the Institute of Global Affairs at the London School of Economics. Where he also serves as co-director of the Institute's ARENA program. And I should note that Peter is also joining us to talk about his new book, This Is Not Propaganda, Adventures in the War Against Reality. So, Peter, we're really delighted that you're here.
2: Hopefully I can, I can, uh, you know, I can live up to your expectations.
0: Peter, first of all, congratulations on the publication of your book. Um, I'd start by saying that, you know, in addition to this terrific book you have out now, you've been looking at these issues for quite some time. Issues of how the information space is changing, how it's susceptible to manipulation, and you're recognized in addition to your two books, um, really contributing some seminal essays to this discussion, some of which have appeared in the Journal of Democracy. Just wondering right at the outset, as you've looked at these issues over the past years, what aspect of the challenge has struck you the most?
2: Look, on the one hand, propaganda is nothing new. I'm going to use the word propaganda, even though you know it's a, it's a, it's a woolly term. But you know, there's nothing new about disinformation. There's nothing new about you know the attempts to manipulate or um, create mass influence. But we basically came up with a very loose formula about how to deal with it and a consensus about what is a democratic information space, a democratic public discourse. And, and these things were kind of axiomatic. You know, we sort of assumed them: that a mixture of freedom of expression, the idea of you know the marketplace of ideas, that more information would mean, at the end of the day, the best information won out; that pluralism would mean a better debate; um, and that you could hold power accountable with with facts and the truth. These are kind of axiomatic ideas that we all assumed. Um, you know, when when you know, you know Eastern European countries emerged out of authoritarianism, that was kind of the formula that you know. You know, the sort of Western development agencies would, would recommend they have a uh, mixture of public service media, pluralism and freedom of expression and, and laws around freedom of expression. Now, all those formula have been have been undermined. And so, you know, because I'm much more interested in the response to what the other side are doing. We're kind of left without a, a vocabulary and a philosophy about how to respond.
0: And one of the ideas that you put forward in the book is this notion that you have media environments that are market-oriented in form, but authoritarian in content. Can you talk a little bit about how that fits with your framing of this?
2: Sure. I mean, I, I would actually take that, you know, that that's one of the most sort of surface obvious and yet you know, most painful developments that we've seen, I think, in, in countries like in Turkey, in Serbia, in Hungary. You know, when you arrive in these countries... On the surface, you see newsstands full of very different media with different owners all you know, run according to more or less what seen to be market laws as, in, you know, they're advertising based. But actually, when you look closer at the system, you'll find that um, the regimes in these countries have managed to sort of rig the advertising system. So if you want your company to do well, to get government contracts, to get government advertising, then, or to get, you know, just more business, then you better make sure that your newspaper plays along. So you have something that looks like a pluralistic media, but actually behind the scenes is very, very rigged. So to be honest, I mean, that, 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 that I think is, what is, is one of the most obvious and, in a sense, superficial ways that, that, that our old ideals have been, have been subverted. But, but it's, um, it's still very effective.
1: So, one thing that Chris mentioned was the idea of the market behind the media. And I want to get at this idea that you've discussed in the past about the marketplace of ideas and whether or not this is really the right metaphor for our time. and And I guess, you know one question is, was that ever the right metaphor? Are we just slowly coming to that realization after the fact? Um, and if that's not the right metaphor, what might be? especially, you know, as you point out, it's not really some market whereby some neutral arbiter or market forces privilege accurate information to the top. Although that's how we typically have thought about it. Um, What we have now are forces that are, as Chris and you have alluded to, that are being artificially and perhaps in a non-transparent way being amplified. But at the same time, you also have things other than market forces, emotionally driven responses that I think we... um, People tend to share bad information based on things other than logic and based on things other than a rational determination of this is the truth. In order to address this crucial question of how we think about these things and address them, what is the right way to think about the environment we're in right now?
2: Hmm. Well, I won't come up with, you know, uh, as beautiful a metaphor as the marketplace of ideas right now, but what a wonderful challenge, actually. What is the new metaphor that we need? Maybe we'll we'll think of it by the end of the podcast, but... uh, Look, I think the marketplace of ideas metaphor, and it is just a metaphor, I think it had some weight when there was still a limited amount of sort of publishing houses and newspapers and channels where, you know, the amount of information um, was still kind of, you, know, you could sort of, sort of grasp it. Now that we live in this era of kind of mass information abundance, where the line between sort of self publishing and publishing has completely been blurred, we're just in a new game. Um, you know, it's it's very interesting that I go around the world in the new book, and a lot of regimes they don't try to control information through censorship, through blocking and constricting the amount of information. They often do the opposite. They they respond by flooding the zone with disinformation, with coordinated campaigns to uh, intimidate and harass and attack their opponents. So I'm not the person who came up with the term information abundance, but I think it's a, it's it's a uh, it's it's a good one. Um, when the zone is flooded with just so much stuff, then the main fight is really for people's attention. And there's ways of capturing that attention that um, have little to do with sort of rational choice theory, you know, where you're standing and choosing between equally weighted bits of information. So so that's, it's a new game. It has a new logic to it. And, you know, I think we have to respond uh, in, in new ways to it.
1: I I think... You know, just as one way of illustrating the idea of information abundance, and I know in your book, you look at the example of the Philippines, and you actually went there and talked to some of the key players in the fight against disinformation and who are examining this idea of information abundance. And I was wondering if you could maybe just talk about some of the things that became apparent to you when you were there and talking to the people there about how this space can be manipulated. So
2: the Philippines is a really, really good example um, because it has one of the highest, maybe the highest use of social media per capita. When you get to the Philippines, you see it straight away. Everyone's on their phones and sort of texting and messaging. And this is kind of like takes selfieism to to a whole different level. Also, when you buy a phone there, most of the time it's hardwired to Facebook. So Facebook is your interface. So it's a social media-powered communications model. The Philippines is fascinating, I think, for people who are concerned with the issues that Ned deals with. Because you know the Philippines, like a lot of countries e- in Eastern Europe and Latin America, emerged from a military dictatorship at the end of the 80s. It kind of had its 1989 moment in 1988. Uh, Marcos, the military dictator, was, was overthrown. And this new era of freedom, including freedom of expression, was ushered in. Now you have a president there, Duterte, who is literally rehabilitating Marcos, as in like he's reburied him. Uh, as, a, as, a, as a national hero. And even though some of the effects of what he's doing, the attacks on critical journalists, the attacks on opposition politicians, echo Marcos. Um, his methods are completely different. So it's not the secret police coming around at night and knocking on your door and, like, and, stealing your, uh, and stealing your sort of little printing press. The attacks happen through what we assume or what we think and sometimes can prove are coordinated campaigns online with bots, trolls, false personas, and real people as well, sort of cyber militias and online mobs, viciously attacking the regime's opponents, destroying their reputation, undermining any trust in them, accusing them of being fake news. Once that ground has been laid, once trust in critical journalism has been undermined, then you get the more legal measures, you know, sort of like cases to do with taxes and, you know, the the usual kind of armory that uh, authoritarian regimes now use to attack their critics, which seems like, you know, you know, it seems an apolitical court case, but actually is very politicized. But that's only possible because these online mobs have have done the work beforehand. And when sort of critical journalists or or opposition politicians say, "Hold on, this is this is actually weirdly a form of censorship." You know, this is a form of stifling us through you know through through speech. Speech is being used as a censorious weapon. The response is, "These are just concerned online citizens expressing what they really think." You know executing their own freedom of expression. And uh, even when you kind of can prove that uh, these aren't actually individuals, these are campaigns which are thought through, attributing them to the regime is very, very difficult. So it's very hard, before it was more vicious, the repressions, but you could prove that it was the states, you know, you knew it was the secret police who'd come around and arrested you, you could call Amnesty International, try to you know ra- raise all the humanitarians of Europe to your cause. There was at least a kind of a logic to it. You know, here is authoritarianism, oppression, the attempt to stifle, and here are, you know, the dissidents fighting against it. But now all that is mixed. So again, the opposition to the regime there, they lack a clear, even kind of a clear principle in international human rights law with which to fight this with.
0: And so staying on this theme, in, in the context of the saturated, distorted marketplace of ideas that we're living in now, you quote Camille Francois in the book talking about state-sponsored trolling. You also allude to what is, in essence, bringing such state-sponsored activity to scale. And you allude, for example, to how YouTube channels work together in the Russian state media context. And so maybe you could just talk a little bit about the machinery that's put into practice and is purposed to take a privileged position in this kind of unwieldy information space, uh, often through what platforms will call inauthentic coordinated activity. But how does that work? What is, what is the logic behind using that sort of social media hidden hand at scale? You know, there's been some fantastic
2: research on this, which, which isn't, isn't mine, I just related in the book, which tries to systematize this. Um, and it goes all the way through from basically people sitting inside political parties and people working directly for for a government, which is what we see in, um, actually that happens a little bit in Turkey, that happens a little bit in Serbia. Then you have a stage away where PR companies, what we call black PR companies in, in, in this field. So shady PR companies that have kind of like a backdoor business, they get hired to do this. So kind of what we see in Russia, you know, where it's sort of, you know, the state kind of commissions someone to do something then you, it gets more and more kind of sophisticated. Then you have sort of the incitement of, of online activists. So we see that in, uh, in Venezuela, where there's been research how government officials kind of instruct online mobs what to do, but they're not sort of PR companies as such. These are kind of like activist groups that you can motivate. So it's a case of kind of like trying to define the relationship between the online activity and the argument that Camille Francois makes that however distant it is, however kind of, you know, even if there's no kind of direct money or payments involved, the state still has a responsibility to protect its citizens.
1: So you mentioned the Internet Research Agency in Russia, and you do have a section of your book devoted to that, which I thought was fascinating, the story of this woman who essentially infiltrated it and and observed firsthand how it worked um, with, you know, she was part of a team composing a complex online identity for, I think, a fictional fortune teller, is that right? which is just amazing that this is something that happens. And then what I found fascinating is that operation was moved from a domestic Russian context to one that was overseas. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on why that was able to be done with what seems like relative ease. I mean, maybe these operations have been built up for a time in other countries, but those basic tactics of being able to kind of understand target populations and manipulate them through fictional identities it seems like something that can be transposed between different contexts, and I I don't know why that is. Maybe you have thoughts on that.
2: I mean, what do you mean why that is? Because because we the Democrats won in 1989. You know, 1989 was was the victory of information flowing across borders over censorship. I mean, in the book, I go back a lot to the Cold War and to my parents' story of Soviet dissidents in the Cold War, and it's kind of. It feels almost shocking now, the amount of censorship there was, how hard it was for people to get like little drips of shortwave radio coming through the jammers of uh, of the Soviet states, just get a little drip of information from the West. You know, we won, and I for one, still hold to the idea that information flowing across borders is a good thing. But maybe we had a slightly kind of lighthearted and um, maybe infantile approach to thinking that the more information that would flow across borders, again, the marketplace of ideas thing the more you know common understanding there would be that and 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 the more kind of the more peace there would be i mean that was kind of the theory you know if we could talk to each other we would understand each other and and we would have kantian perpetual peace surprise surprise um you know this this lovely this lovely theory was quickly hacked by people's like okay actually this is a new way to mess with other people and we're not even breaking any laws you know what's wrong with this There's no you know in international human rights law in article 19 there is nothing about disinformation being illegal. There's, there's, the disinformation is not a legal category. So, you know, my book is really full of the forces that, you know, lost in the 20th century, the forces of totalitarianism and authoritarianism, although we thought had lost, kind of reinventing themselves and learning to hack the language and the ideas and the principles of open borders, of freedom, of liberal democracy for their own ends. The risk that we face now is that as we grapple for a response to this, and not just Russian false personas, but also domestic false personas, and just the whole flood of fakery online, is that we start falling into a regulatory framework that's actually not a clever one. And I see that happening already in Europe. I see the language around that in the US. and And, and that's bad for many, many reasons that I can go into if you want me to.
0: In an essay you wrote for the Journal of Democracy, I think it was in 2015, looking at the Kremlin's disinformation machinery, you posited, I think presciently, that there really was nothing to prevent what was happening there, and you've just alluded to this in a way, um, to be transmuted to other places that others would learn and adapt to use this. Um, What's your take on how China is doing this now? I know you've looked at that a little bit, but I think there was a point in time not so long ago where people said, you know they don't do that sort of thing. They've got a different way of approaching these kinds of issues. And now if we look at Hong Kong, maybe people are starting to question their assumptions.
2: So I'm not a China expert, um, but I do go to China in the book. Um, In terms of technology and techniques, you know, obviously China does enact more censorship domestically with the Chinese firewall. But, you know, they have their own troll farms, the 50 Cent Army. Uh, There's been fantastic studies at Harvard about the tactics of the 50 Cent Army. But no, they, they domestically they, they've done exactly this. They just like the Russians created the troll farms for, for domestic reasons first. You know, uh, as Chanty says, they only went international afterwards. So the Chinese have the same technology, the same kind of logic. Everyone does, to be honest. It's not like a Russia-China thing. Like it, it, it's happening all over the place. It's just what you do. And I think China was using social media very aggressively in ways quite similar to the Russians, but. In quite concentrated moments, in Taiwan, for example, so they were doing it there. I think internationally, maybe you know, China is playing a long game. You know, Russia is playing a desperate game and desperately trying to get attention, and kind of using this information uh, aggression uh, in a very kind of short-termist way for for a bunch of you know, domestic reasons. I think China is playing a longer game. It's trying to sort of really sort of impress that it is the long, stable, and undeniable, and immovable force that everyone's going to have to deal with. Um, So even China, Chinese TV, it's international TV. It's not as scandalous as Russia today, which is always trying to kind of like foment chaos. Um, So they're just playing a slightly different game. uh, But in terms of like, you know, they do use it uh, locally. And it's just a matter of time before, you know, that that expands. But look, this is really a systemic issue. I mean, China, Russia, Mexico, we're seeing like signs that, you know, Maybe Poland is starting to indulge in this. I think, you know, it's cheap, it's easy. There's no regulatory kind of, you know, there's nothing regu- from the regulatory point of view, there's nothing stopping you doing it. And also kind of the costs are really low. I mean, what, what are you going to, what, what's going to happen? Are you Are going to get bombed for some, for some trolling? I mean, it's not going you know, the worst that's going to happen is Macron will say something nasty about you one year, but the next year he'll still be doing business deals with you. You know, it's a kind of low level activity, which, I mean, it's not really punished.
1: So one thing, this is um, kind of moving on to looking forward, let's say. You describe in the book the example of the cyber attack on Estonia in 2007. You also talk about the Kremlin's information campaign in Ukraine. And in retrospect, it seems like we should have paid more attention to those incidents at the time as perhaps a harbinger of things to come. So as you look around now, and I know that there's a lot going on right now, and it's hard to pick out one particular incident, but... What are the developments that are happening currently that we should be focusing on in this space in particular that you think we should, you know, if we can fast forward to ourselves in 10 years and look back on today and say, oh, well, we really should have been paying more attention to the not specific events, but maybe trends or dynamics in this space?
2: So there's two things happening at the moment, which which I think could be of consequence. I mean, in terms of sort of the techniques and tactics of let's talk about just sort of social media campaigns. Um, what we're seeing is it's not just state actors. It's state actors like Russia. Um, And then it's, you know, kind of a dark civil society. Exactly the sort of, you know, organizations that Ned was supporting in terms, you know, human rights, NGOs and stuff like that, now exist on, you know, on the alt-right and, and, you know, on on the other side of the political spectrum. Um, They're sprouting up everywhere. They're connecting amongst each other. They're actually using the language of, And the logic of democratic civil rights movements, they're interconnecting. Uh, They're looking for the lowest common denominator, what they call it. So you'll have sort of far-right movements in uh, France teaming up with anti-feminist movements in Sweden and anti-Muslim groups in Germany. And then Russia gives, you know, Russia comes in as well. And funnily enough, these kind of like forces that say they hate globalism a lot of the time are very, very good at this new globalized world. Uh, They're using... You know data analytics you know we've penetrated sort of in the research that that we've done at the lse with some of our partners we've penetrated sort of like you know the online war rooms of these organizations and they think like marketing people you know they're very very structured we're going to launch you know this anti-muslim campaign in europe involving activists from sweden from america it's a truly global you know it's a truly global movement uh which has loose and sometimes more structured relationships with states, we then take it to another level. Um, and they're thinking in very hybrid ways. They'll have an online media campaign with a party political campaign, with a civic campaign. They're organizing. Um, and what's scary is they use a lot of the kind of, you know, a lot of the sort of creative and activist logic that we always thought was belonged to sort of democratic rights movements. So that's what's happening. It's not just states, it's this kind of weird hybrid of bad stuff. And they have embraced the technology in the way that democratic movements have not, in my sense. Uh, my sense is that, you know, human rights NGOs and so on and so forth are still very siloed, still doing their own little thing. They're not interconnecting. They're not seeing that this is a, sort of the information environment is, isn't just kind of PR, it is the environment where everything takes place now. So that's what's happening. It's not just states. Um, that's very alarming. The other big thing that's happening is, um, we're moving towards regulation. So the adults are coming into the room, as you say, it was kind of a free-for-all in the internet space for a long time. Regulation is happening. And as I just mentioned, I'm very worried that the regulatory logic that's taking hold is actually the one that China and Russia actually really want, which is one based on kind of censoring content. So we've already got laws against fake news and takedowns of disinformation that have already, we already see them in France and Germany, they're sprouting in Singapore and Malaysia, Britain as its Thinking about its regulatory model is is think is talking about this as well, and weirdly in America this whole you know on the on the one hand I'm I'm very much a, I don't know if I'm a Russia hawk but I'm some sort of like you know predatory bird when it comes to Russia I do worry about the language of that the Russian social media campaigns are framed in when we talk about it as interference and meddling this is not very clever language I think this frames it a priori as saying information flowing across borders is is, is bad. And I still think information flowing across borders is good. The problem with the Russian stuff is not the meddling, the act of being in another country, it's the nature of these campaigns. So I think that regulation can't be based on a censorious logic of let's take down um, fake news or let's take down, or let's stop information flowing across borders. That can't be the logic through which we approach it. Um, And that can't be the kind of the cultural framework through which we approach it. That's just what Russia wants, Russia and China, have for a long time said they want a sovereign internet, which is their, you know, their 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 fluffy way of saying they want to reimpose censorship to, you know, re you know, draw back the victories of 1989. I don't think that's what we need. I think the regulation that we need has to be based on something else. It has to be based actually on demand for more information, not less. And but what kind of information? Not content of which there's a little bit too much around, but about how information is produced, the means of production. So that's everything from transparency about algorithms and how Google and Facebook, why they show us one piece of content not another, through to the sort of deceptive coordinated campaigns should be regulated, yeah? It's the deceptive behavior which is important, not the content. We should be able to know what we see online, whether it's a real person or uh, a, f- a fake persona, We should be able to understand whether something was organic or a campaign. We should know who is behind it. We should understand all the money that's gone into it. We should be understand who it's being targeted at. When our own data is used to target us, we should know which of our own data is used. If a political campaign during an election is targeting us with one ad, we should be able to see all the other ads they're doing in in case the targeting is contradictory, which is what it often is. So we live actually in a new form of censorship, I would say, where we don't understand how the information environment around us is being shaped. That should be our demand. And that's a demand that the Putins and the Xi Jinpings will hate because they don't want their own population to know what online is uh, organic and what is their troll farm, how they bully their own tech companies into rigging the algorithms to promote Kremlin news. So that is a democratic logic. That's still the logic of freedom of expression. And we can regulate that. We can say, OK, if you have created a coordinated, inauthentic campaign, that's illegal. That comes down.
0: Before we wrap up our conversation, I'd like to conclude with our final segment called What We're Reading, where we discuss what's at the top of our respective reading lists and might recommend to our listeners. Peter, what are you reading?
2: So I'm rereading and rereading an art book, a book of art history, because actually my book, even though we've talked about it, you know, from uh, the perspective of the struggle for democracy, it's, its kind of essence is how do you describe reality? So the art books that I've turned back to try to describe other people who lived in similar situations where all language has been eaten up. And how do you describe reality? How do you remain a realist in this sort of context? And the book I'm getting to is a book by Boris Groys, who's who's an art historian um, called History Becomes Form, which is about the Moscow Conceptualists, which was a Russian art movement in sort of the 70s and 80s. And they were grappling with with this problem. The Soviet Union has eaten up all forms of representations, all forms of describing yourself and the world around you. How do you find reality? It was amazing to me how how much their search resonated with with what I'm trying to attempt in the book because the book is also a mild piece of experimental nonfiction where I'm trying to think about in terms of its genre um, how do I describe reality when when there's no language left to describe it in um, so I take great inspiration from that and it's a really really fascinating book I think there's so much we can learn from the dissident movements um, the Czech dissident movements the the Russian nonconformist art movements which which are much kind of more subtle than the old stories we always told between freedom and oppression uh, and, and, and weirdly related to today's world.
0: And Shanti, what are you reading?
1: So I'm also going back to a book from the relatively recent past. I'm rereading a book called Radical Technologies by my friend Adam Greenfield, who, and I am biased, he is a friend of mine, but I, I do think he's one of the world's most thoughtful observers of the societal and political implications of technology. His previous book was called Everywhere, The Dawning Age of Ubiquitous Computing, and it was published in 2006 and in many ways essentially predicted our current era and the ways that we are being constantly surveilled all the time by everyday objects. Um, This one, Radical Technologies, was published in 2017, and it serves as it's build as a field guide to the technologies that are transforming our lives. So Adam examines the Internet of Things, augmented reality, machine learning, and artificial intelligence, among other issues, and he really forces the reader to to ask hard questions about how our impulse toward convenience has obscured fundamental questions about control, governance, and agency.
0: And I'm reading a report titled, The World Wide Web of Chinese and Russian Information Controls, which is authored by Valentin Weber. We recently released this report here at NED at an event organized by our colleagues at the Center for International Media Assistance. This report offers a systematic analysis of drivers and outcomes of the global diffusion of Chinese and Russian information control technology and techniques. It lays out, for instance, how the BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, functions as a vehicle for the spread of such technology from China. And among other things, the report is really Quite useful. Uh, it provides a graphic representation in the second half of the report on how China and Russia are diffusing different forms of this technology across dozens of countries. I think for anyone who's interested in this, it's well worth a look.
1: Well, that's all we have time for today. But thank you so much to Peter for being such a fascinating guest and for a terrific conversation.
2: Thanks for finding the time to meet with me. It's it's, it's my honor, and I'm going to dive straight into this report about Chinese and Russian internet controls. I think we need much more understanding both of the sort of technologies that are used, but also the way that, you know, they're being pushed in the political sphere and various regulatory ideas are being pushed as well.
1: That's all for today's episode of the Power 3.0 podcast. For more on the topic we discussed today, we recommend reading Peter Pomerantsev's new book, This Is Not Propaganda, Adventures in the War Against Reality. For further analysis of the themes we discussed today and will be examining in future podcast episodes, visit our blog, Power 3.0, Understanding Modern Authoritarian Influence. We also invite you to join the conversation with us on Facebook and Twitter, where you can find us using the handle at thinkdemocracy. Additional resources are available on the NED website at www.ned.org ideas. If you enjoyed today's show, please rate us on iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcast app you use. Special thanks to our podcast production team at the International Forum, producer Jessica Lidwig, and our editing and sound engineer, Rochelle Faust. I'm Shanti Kalatul, with Chris Walker and Peter Pomerantsev. We hope you enjoyed this discussion on disinformation in the global arena, and invite you to tune in again for future Power 3.0 podcasts.